for your benefit, the topic we're dealing with, and you're in the second half, so you missed the first half, I'll just cup, cup, touch on a couple key points that you missed, is why do so many well-meaning Christians discriminate against others every day, is our general topic. There's some core principles that we spend time on at the beginning that, that are really important in terms of the whole series that I'm doing, the six-part series that I'm doing. Uh, importantly, we are centrally focused on John 17 and Christ's call for unity. I, I am emphasizing, as we think about Christ's call for unity, the fact <clears throat> that Jesus himself said that when we are one, even as he and the Father are one, the world will believe and the world will know that he has been sent. So that unity is not just political correctness. It's not just a good idea. It's a command from God because it's one of the more effective ways in which we can witness. In fact, the spirit of prophecy indicates that the single strongest witness that can be born that God has sent his son into the world, and she's elaborating on John 17, is the harmony and union existing among Christ's followers. So unity is not an optional thing. It is essential to us accomplishing the task that God has given us to do. And I also emphasize in each of my presentations that, that the, the, there's the promise of what can be accomplished when we humble ourselves before God, um, when we look at the, 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 the challenges um, that we face, when we, we are kind and loving, the Spirit of Prophecy says, if we would only do this, there would be 100 conversions to the truth where now there is one. So partly what I'm saying is that although we don't talk a lot about unity, unity is one of the most effective mechanisms, strategies of evangelism. And in my last two seminars, that's tomorrow morning, we will centrally go into John 17 and centrally go into the spirit of prophecy to, to understand how can we get this unity, what are the steps we need to take, and what are the promises of God for dealing with, with us? Okay, um, what you missed was my uh, presentation on John chapter 4, where we looked at Jesus' encounter of the woman at the well, and that the Samaritan woman that Jesus encountered was someone uh, of a different ethnic group, of a despised ethnic group, someone that the social rules said he should have nothing to do with, and Jesus, someone who was negatively stereotyped in many ways, and Jesus rose above them and um, those stereotypes, and in fact, um, ministered to this person. I then tried to bring, make this real by looking at an area where I have been doing um, research uh, at a national level and, and health policy, um, that has to do with disparities in medical care um, by uh, health care providers in the United States. And I, I gave several examples of them just to make the point that the average person, and certainly the average Christian and the average Adventist, would think, I would never stereotype people and treat them differently. I would never discriminate against others, and I'm just showing you, not research on us, but research on physicians. 
some of the most educated, respected health professionals in the country. And I'm going to repeat this one study. I showed several others, but let me repeat this one study for those of you who've just come in to give you context because we're going to move forward uh, um, um, from this point. This study, for those of you who just came in, is an example from a report that was done, that was requested by the United States Congress, that was completed by the Institute of Medicine, which is the highest medical authority in the country. I happen to have served on the panel of 12 experts that they brought together for this. And this is just one of over 200 studies in different areas of medicine that show the same pattern. Dr. Todd was an emergency room physician at the UCLA Medical Center. And he asked a very simple question. When a patient comes to the UCLA Medical Center with a broken bone in their arm or legs, the physicians call that a long bone fracture, is there a difference by ethnicity in whether the patient receives pain medication or not? And Dr. Todd went back through the medical records for an entire year at UCLA and found that of Hispanics who came to UCLA with a broken bone in the arm or legs, 55% uh, uh, of Hispanics did not receive any pain medication compared to 26% of non-Hispanic whites. Striking pattern when he statistically adjusted for all the other potential explanations, the single strongest predictor of whether a patient received pain medication or not was Hispanic ethnicity. He did a second study and he looked to see how patients express pain how providers could identify the way in which the pain patients were in. Because one hypothesis was that maybe Hispanics manifest pain in a, a cultural way that providers are just not cluing in on. And what he found was that physicians could equally tell the severity of pain in Hispanic patients versus other patients, but you could see systematically they prescribed less pain medication. Dr. Todd moved from UCLA to Emory University in Atlanta, repeated the same study at the three large, largest emergency rooms in Atlanta, looking at black and white patients and found exactly the same thing. A black patient with a broken bone in the arm or legs going to an emergency room in Atlanta is less likely to get pain medication than a white patient. And so we were left with a question, and, and this is just one study of at the time the Institute of Medicine report was released in 2003, there were 200 studies that document this in the published scientific medical literature. There's no question about the science. This happens. Uh, the question is, how on earth do we make sense of it? How is it possible that well-meaning, highly educated health professionals in the US, working in their usual circumstances, going to work every day, seeking to do their best, I honestly believe, for all of their patients, how is it possible that they could create a pattern of care that is so discriminatory? Because remember, I just gave you an example of pain medication, but for those who are here in the last hour, I showed you this occurs in every area. It's probably best documented in the area of cardiovascular treatment, but it's, it's true in every area of medicine. How on earth do we make sense of it? How why would race matter so much in terms of how patients are treated? And what are the implications of that for us as Christians? And could it be, could it be that we could treat people differently in the same way and not even be aware that we are doing it? 
There are multiple explanations for the potential of these differences. One of the most compelling, one for which there was some evidence back in 2003, one for which there's a lot more evidence today, is a phenomenon called unconscious or unthinking discrimination based on negative stereotypes. There is a large body of social scientific research. So this is a robust finding. This is not about Americans. It's about people. It's not about racial stereotypes. It's about stereotypes. What this research indicates is that when you hold systematic negative beliefs about a group of people, and you meet someone from that group, it's an automatic process, and it's an unconscious process. You will treat that person differently and honestly not know that you did it. This is important. You've got to get this because it's a central point. It's called unconscious or unthinking discrimination based on negative stereotypes, very well empirically documented in the US and in other societies. It is linked to the way the human mind processes information. It's linked to what social psychologists call processes of group categorization. All of us process the sensory input that we receive every day into groups. It's the, one of the ways that we use in, in terms of perception to make sense of our world and to simplify all of the information we receive. We process things into groups, so we all do this. It's how humans perceive. The issue is, where are you? What is your background? What is your social context? And what categories do you view negatively? So all of us put things into groups. The, what the research shows, when you have some groups that you systematically look at negatively, you will treat a person, an individual, from that group differently. And importantly, you would not know that you have done it. So it's not deliberate discrimination. It's not intentional discrimination. It's discrimination nonetheless. If you didn't get pain medication, you're in pain, whether it was conscious or unconscious. But it's a process of how all of us handle information that all of us need to be aware of. And so the question is, is there negative stereotypes of groups? Does, does, can race provide a way to think about this? And I want to show you quickly a few slides to document the persistence of race in, in American society. And I'm just going to show slides. And, and, and first, we want to celebrate the good news. I'm showing you slides, um, let me go back to this one. I'm showing you slides that illustrate the dramatic changes in American society in the question of race in the last 50 years. And, and these are stunning changes. So here is an example of a question. Do you think Negroes should have as good a chance as white people to get any kind of job? Or do you think white people should have the first chance at any kind of job? This question was first asked in 1944. And what I'm showing you is other points over time where the identical question has been asked in national sample of whites in the United States. And you can see the dramatic increase 
that the percent of people who said Negroes should have as good a chance as whites to get any job, in 1944, less than half of whites believed that. And you could see over time, by the last time the question was asked in 1973, over 96% of whites said, yes, everybody should be equal. So there's been a dramatic change in this country, and we should celebrate that on the principle of equality. This is the flip side of the question, or whites should have the first chance at any job. Back in 1944, the first time the question was asked, you can see that 54% of whites said, oh, whites should have the first chance at any job, believed in affirmative action for whites. The dramatic change over time by 1972, the last time the question was asked, you could see that less than 5% of whites said that. So it's a dramatic change. We can celebrate the changes we have made on race um, as a nation. However, what the research also shows that although there is this universal commitment to the principle of equality, there is what researchers call a principle implementation gap. There is more support for endorsing equality in principle than endorsing policies that would achieve it. And I will give you one example just to illustrate the point. It's a, it's a point to keep in mind. So this is a question. Some people feel that if black people are not getting fair treatment in jobs, the government in Washington ought to see to it that they do. Others feel this is not a federal government's business. Have you had enough interest in this question to favor one side or the other? Um, how do you feel? Should a government in Washington see the way that black people get fair treatment in jobs, or is this not the federal government's business? This has to do then with policies to implement it. It's one example. There's a lot of stuff going on here. What I want to illustrate, I show you the data on the principle. We saw that before. And I'm showing you the data on the implementation. You can see um, the implementation. Government should ensure no discrimination in jobs, what percentage of people say that government should ensure no discrimination in jobs? You can see um, it's around 30% the last time the question was asked in 2004. Um, so while everybody supports the principle of equality, there is much fewer people support policies to implement it. And actually, over time, the people who say, I could care less one way or the other whether discrimination has happened or not is actually increasing. So I'm showing that there is progress in, in some dramatic sense, but it's a little more complicated. There's another example, but I, in the interest of time, I'm not going to go into that. But I want to show some striking data on stereotypes and then try to bring the message home in a spiritual context for each one of us. Stereotypes occur. We talked about stereotypes when we talked about the woman at the well and the negative stereotypes that existed about Samaritans back in the time of Christ. What's the level of stereotyping in the United States along racial lines today? I'm going to share with you data from the General Social Survey. It's the most respected social indicator survey in the U.S. funded by the National Science Foundation done at the University of Chicago. This was study done in 1990, a, a national sample of whites. What you can see in this national sample is 44% of whites believe that blacks are lazy, 56% that blacks prefer to live off welfare, 51% that blacks are prone to violence, 29% that blacks are unintelligent. If I look at how whites perceive whites compared to how they perceive themselves, you could see that 44% of whites believe that blacks are lazy, but only 5% of whites believe that whites are lazy. So you can see dramatic racial stereotyping. This is very relevant to the example of the physicians because physicians come from the same society. They are products, not all of them by any means, of these stereotypes that exist. Um, 
another way to look at the stereotypes, the way these questions were asked on stereotypes, we don't ask them yes or no because no one answers them. They'll be offended by the question. We ask them on a seven-point scale where we say four is neither agree or disagree. Those are the people in the middle. And I'm collapsing all of the, the degrees of laziness or the degrees of hard working on one side. If we look at the positive end of the stereotypes, you can see that one in five whites or fewer were willing to say that blacks are hardworking, prefer to be self-supporting, are not prone to violence, or are intelligent. And you could see they view themselves much more positively. The only point I'm raising this is to point to the fact that there is dramatic variation in stereotyping in our society. That becomes part of the background and cultural context in which we will understand the differences. What I also want to illustrate here, across the four stereotypes, this pattern exists for every single stereotype. And what you can see is the original data I showed you. Thank you so very much. What, what you can see is the original data I showed you, that 56% of whites believe that blacks um, prefer to live off welfare. But 4% uh, of whites believe that whites prefer to live off welfare. This hierarchy of different groups, these were just the groups that were asked in the study. I didn't do the study, I'm just using the data. Hispanics are viewed twice as negatively as Asians. You see 42% of whites believe that Hispanics uh, prefer to live off welfare, 16% believe that Asians prefer to live off welfare. Southern whites are consistently viewed more negatively than whites in general across all the stereotypes, with Jews viewed more positively than whites in general. That is the national data, the pattern that exists. I'm not getting into the intricacies of it, just illustrating there is a dramatically high level of stereotyping. And someone says, that's 1990 data. Do we have more recent data? This is the same social indicator survey. This is in 2000. This is not a percent of whites. This is a percent of all Americans viewing different groups. And you could see 45% of all Americans view blacks as prone to violence. Of all Americans, 21% view whites as prone to violence, 34% view Hispanics, Asians, Jews, Southern whites was not asked in this iteracy of it. So you can see the pattern across groups um, in general. Um, you could see in the year 2000, uh, similar data on the levels of stereotyping in this one. It's, it's, it's the stereotype of being lazy. And again, you can see blacks, whites, Hispanics, Asians, Jews. Okay? So if, if there's any questions, for those of you who weren't here the first session, I said if there are any questions, if I'm going too fast, stop me. If there's a question for clarification, stop me as we go through else. I'll just keep moving along thinking you're with me. The last time any of these stereotypes were asked in that social indicator survey was just in 2006. Of all Americans, what percentage believe that blacks are lazy? What percentage believe that whites are lazy? Again, the point I'm showing you is the consistent pattern of negative um, um, stereotyping. So the issue is, given the level of unconscious discrimination, of, of stereotyping, we can presume that there would be a high level of unconscious discrimination. Is everyone with me on, because it's, this is central, the phenomenon of unconscious, in fact, it's so important. Some civil rights scholars have argued that civil rights legislation in the United States is flawed because it requires you, and the Supreme Court rulings require you, to prove intent. This research suggests there'll be a lot of discrimination once there's high levels of stereotyping for which there is no intent. It's unconscious, it's unthinking. People don't even know they did it. How could they have an intent? 
and all it needs to trigger it is the presence of negative stereotypes. It's automatic, it's subconscious, this is well documented, it occurs among people who are not prejudiced in terms of any cognitive measure of prejudice. And someone says, I know I would never do it. I go back to a text I showed back in the first session. Paul says, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Or we can look at the example of Peter on the night of the crucifixion said, Peter said what? Lord, even if all of them leave you, I will never abandon you. And Jesus says, and, and, and what the text says after that, and the same said all the other disciples. It wasn't just Peter, we pick on him a lot, but all of them said that. And Jesus said, before the cock throws thrice, you will deny me, or twice, you will deny me thrice. So I'm saying this is a well-established phenomenon. I tell my students, I am a prejudiced person. If I am part of the society, what may differ is which groups that I hold into different social categories. But that's if how I normally will process information, I will do this. And, and progress begins with my own recognition that this is possible for me. The point I'm making is this is a robust phenomenon generalizable across a range of, of, of social characteristics across societies. This is not an American phenomenon, and this is not about race. It's about what groups are put in categories and what groups are viewed negatively. The research in the U.S. finds that someone's race, their gender, and their age are the three things we focus on first, the three big things we focus on when we meet someone. So they, they become the, the basis of potential um, 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 discrimination. Now, I, I want to talk about the, the biblical solution, but let me just give you a sense of what the social science research has looked at. Are there solutions? Are things possible? It can, can, can you overcome this? What the research finds is that stereotypes are very resistant to change. And we tend to process information by seeing those things that are consistent with our stereotypes. It's like we, we see everything at one level, but we attend to those things that confirm the beliefs we have, and we tend to discount those things that are inconsistent with our beliefs. It's how we process information. But persons who hold egalitarian beliefs are less likely to activate negative stereotypes when exposed to neutral stimuli but not when exposed to negative stimuli. So it helps, but only a bit. There is some evidence that we can consciously, if we are aware of the fact that this is possible for us, we can respond without discrimination, but we first have to be aware of the fact that this could happen to me. And, and the, the biggest challenge for a lot of people is to think, I would never do that. And if you think you'd never do that, you'll do it. If you realize, I could do this, I've got to be aware that this is a potential danger. I have to have time. I have to have motivation. It's possible uh, for us to do it. The other thing that, that research suggests is that something called counter-stereotype mental imagery. If you think women, all women are weak, and you view women negatively, if you can stop and think what a strong woman would look like, 
and think that a woman could be strong and the ways in which she could be strong, that might actually help you. It's called counter-stereotype um, imagery. The, the other thing um, that research suggests is um, putting yourself in the place of the other person also can help to reduce the tendency so that if you could imagine what life would be like in that person's shoes can actually make a difference in reducing the chances of this happening. What I'm saying is that there's some bad news. Um, there's still a lot of negative stereotyping on the basis of race in American society today. And we are Christians, a part of the society. It can be a problem for us. The good news is all of us, people of all races, want to do better. And I think that that's a genuine desire and the, the overwhelming proportion of people in all societies wanting to do better. The bottom line take home point I am making though is that good intentions are not enough. Just having good intentions are not enough. And that we need help if we will be successful in overcoming these natural human tendencies um, of negatively putting people into particular categories. And I go back to the example I used in the last hour of the woman at the well, and more broadly, let's, let's consider the example of Jesus and let's consider another example of Adventists. Jesus came to the world and Jesus saw, as I showed in the example of the woman at the well, a society in which there was ethnocentrism, there was negative stereotyping, and there was social injustice. Jesus didn't just pray and say that things would get better in heaven. Jesus took action. Every single day, with every single person that Jesus encountered, he looked at them through heaven's eyes. He viewed people the way God would view them, and he treated each person with dignity and grace. I'm saying that Jesus rose above the stereotypes of his society and he saw each individual as a person made in the image of God and that's what he's causing, calling us to do. Jesus affirmed by the way he treated people that regardless of where they were born, who their parents were, what job they did, how much money they had, what kind of clothes they wore, what neighborhood they lived in, whether they were short or tall, or whether they were slim or fat, red or yellow, black or white, Jesus treated every man, every woman, every boy, every girl as precious in God's sight, and that's what he's calling us to do. And every day, as Jesus walked the dusty roads of Galilee, the despised, the outlaws, the nobodies, and the no-goods were pulled out of their little social boxes and social categories that society had put them into and uplifted into authentic personhood by Jesus. My message this morning is that Jesus broke down all of the social barriers and stereotypes that separated people from each other. If you read the gospel message carefully, you see that when Jesus chose Simon the Zealot to be one of his followers, he was breaking down political barriers and was picking a terrorist of his day to be one of his followers. By dining with Zacchaeus, Jesus was ignoring the barriers of social class. In talking with the woman of Samaria, he put aside the social barriers and the social stereotypes. 
in heeding the appeal of the Syrophoenician woman and praising the faith of the Roman centurion, Jesus was bypassing the barriers of nationality. He allowed a woman who was a sinner to touch him, forgetting the barrier of reputation. A poor widow gave her might, and Jesus held her up for praise, overcoming economic barriers. When the disciples' feet were dirty, Jesus washed them, not minding the barrier between the master and the servant. Yet when the disciples criticized a follower who did not belong to the group, and Jesus rebuked their intolerance, setting aside denominational barriers. As a baby, an old man rejoiced in him. As a young man, Jesus died still a young man. Children flocked to him. Jesus crossed the barriers of age. I'm saying to you today, Jesus was a bridge over the troubled waters of our prejudices, stereotypes, and social categories, or social categorization of people. He came to demonstrate that the only service that is valuable in God's eyes is loving service that begins by viewing every person through his heaven's eyes. And somebody says to me out here, you don't understand. I would never discriminate against anybody. That's the way my mother brought me up. Again, I, I, I remind you, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. The scientific research shows you don't even have to be prejudiced. But as long as you hold negative stereotypes of some groups, and you meet someone who fits the stereotype, it's automatic, it's unconscious, you will treat people differently and not be aware of it. So I say to you this morning, GYC attendees, what are your stereotypes about others? All of us have stereotypes. What are your stereotypes of immigrants and illegal immigrants? Very much in the news today. If we hold stereotypes, it will affect how we treat others. Our negative stereotypes can prevent us from looking at each person as an individual. Negative beliefs about groups can prevent us from looking at each child of humanity through heaven's eyes. God is not asking us to deny reality, but he's asking us to look at everyone the way he looks at us. And God sees us not as we are, but as we can become through his grace. So I say to you, what are your stereotypes today? What are your stereotypes about black Americans? What are your stereotypes about white people, about Jews, about women, about people who live in certain neighborhoods? What are American Indians like to you? What are your systematic beliefs about people who come from Germany or Jamaica, from Haiti or Nigeria? What are your beliefs about Palestinians or Italians or Californians or Guyanese? In your little world of putting people into boxes, and we all tend to do that, what are people who come from Appalachia like, or Mississippi, or South Africa? What I'm saying is, we need to have the Holy Spirit remind us every day that God has made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell upon the face of the earth.
And we need to ask God to anoint our eyes with the eyes self of his grace so that we can look at every child of humanity through heaven's eyes. Man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart, and we need to learn to do that ourselves. And somebody says to me, but you don't understand, I'm an Adventist. We have the truth. We don't have such problems. We wouldn't do things like that. And I say, come with me to the African country of Rwanda in the year 1994. There are two main tribal groups in Rwanda. The majority group are the Hutus. They are short, dark, flat-nosed, and thick-lipped. The Hutus were exploited by the Germans and Belgians who colonized Rwanda, and they were told that they were descended from Ham and were an inferior race. The other tribal group in Rwanda are the Tutsis. They were tall and light-complexioned with narrow noses and thin lips. They were favored by the European colonists and were told that they were descended from Shem and were of a superior race. In April of 1994, the country of Rwanda erupted in violence with Hutus attacking and killing Tutsis. The United Nations estimates that before all of the fighting was over, one million people, mostly Tutsis, were killed. Now Rwanda has one of the highest concentrations of Seventh-day Adventists in the world. Back in the early 1990s, one in every 30 people in Rwanda was a Seventh-day Adventist. It is believed that at least 10,000 Adventists were killed in Rwanda. I want to tell you about one incident that has been called the Sabbath Massacre. It was an incident of Tutsis, most of whom Seventh-day Adventists were killed. The massacre took place on the compound of the headquarters of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Rwanda, and it was engineered by the leader, the conference president of the Adventist Church. According to the media reports, and the indictment of the United Nations Criminal Tribunal, this slaughter of hundreds of Tutsis was masterminded by the Seventh-day Adventist Conference President, who was a member of the Hutu tribe. The Conference President had invited the Tutsis to come to the SDA compound as a place of refuge. The Tutsis had every reason to believe him. First, he was their spiritual leader. Second, although he was a Hutu, his wife was a Tutsi, so they believed that when he extended the invitation to come here and you would be safe, they would be safe. More than 2,000 Tutsis came to the Adventist compound. There was a large church on the compound, a chapel, a hospital, and a nursing school. According to the reports of the survivors, once they were at the compound, the sick Tutsis were not provided medical treatment, and the conference president and his son, his son was a medical doctor, evacuated several dozen Hutus that were there, separating the Hutus from the Tutsis. Friday evening, April 15th, the Tutsis learned that they will be killed in the morning, Sabbath morning. Seven Seventh-day Adventist pastors who were Tutsis and who were part of the 2,000 Tutsis invited to the compound as a place of safety, wrote a letter to their fellow Adventist conference president who happened to be a Hutu. 
Here is the letter. Our dear leader, Pastor, and I can't pronounce the name, how are you? We wish you to be strong with all these problems we are facing. We wish to inform you that we have heard that tomorrow we will be killed with our families. By the way, there's a book. You can buy it at any bookstore, and that's the title of the book. We wish to inform you that we have heard that tomorrow we will be killed with our families. You can find it at Borders or any bookstore. They can order it free if they don't have it in stock. We therefore request, the letter goes on, you to intervene on our behalf and talk with the mayor. We believe that with the help of God, who entrusted you the leadership of the flock, which is going to be destroyed, your intervention uh, will be highly appreciated. The same way as the Jews were saved by Esther, we give honor to you. So this is a letter, according to the survivors, written by seven Seventh-day Adventist ministers, who happened to be Tutsi, to their conference president, who happened to be Hutu, on Friday night when they heard they were going to be killed in the morning. <clears throat> One survivor reported that the conference president's response was, and I quote, your problem has already found a solution, you must die, unquote. Another survivor remembered him saying, I quote, you must be eliminated, God no longer wants you, unquote. Then at nine o'clock on Sabbath morning, April 16, 1994, nine o'clock, the time when Adventists around the world normally start getting ready to go to Sabbath school, the conference president and his son, a medical doctor, brought in the local Hutu militiamen who used guns, machetes, and grenades to eliminate the Tutsis. Those who cried for help were hacked to death. And in the evening, tear gas was used to see if anyone was alive among the hundreds of dead bodies. The story received considerable media coverage in the United States because the conference president legally migrated to the U.S. to live with one of his children in Laredo, Texas. He lost several appeals to stay in the U.S. and he was arrested by the FBI in September 1996. He was extradited to face charges of genocide and crimes against humanity. In fact, it was the first time in the history of the United States that the U.S. government surrendered a defendant from American soil to a U.N. tribunal. On February 19, 2003, the U.N. tribunal found the pastor, conference president, age 78 at the time, and his son, the medical doctor, age 45, convicted them, found them guilty of genocide and crimes against humanity. His son was also convicted of aiding and abetting genocide. Why did I tell you this story? It's a true story. It's in the media. Go online and find the facts about it. The story must remind each one of us that a human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The horrors of history must remind us that it's not enough to have the right doctrines. It's not enough to belong to the remnant church. It is not enough to pay our tithes and dress respectably and hold positions of leadership in church or society. Somebody asked this morning, what is the solution? What can help us 
to overcome this natural human tendency to be prejudiced and to discriminate against others? And I say the answer comes in the words of that beautiful hymn that we know so well, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make us pure within? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is that flow that makes us white as snow. No other font we know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That story tells us that each one of us needs to be under the care of Dr. Jesus every day. The solution to the problems of hate and indifference and prejudice and discrimination and human pride is found in the power of the gospel to transform us from being selfish and self-centered to being humble, full of love, and full of service to others. And someone says, how on earth do we get this kind of love? Price Subject Lessons, page 384. Powerful quotation that really brings the point home powerfully. It says, love is the basis of godliness. No man or woman has pure love to God unless he has unselfish love for his brother. And then Ellen White says, which is striking, the Avis model is not going to work. You can't walk out of these doors and say, I'm going to try harder and I'm going to be successful. We can never, she says, I usually pay attention when the spirit of prophecy uses absolutes. We can never come into possession of this spirit by trying to love others. Well, if, we can, if trying is not going to help, what is the solution? What is needed, she says, is the love of Christ in the heart. When self is merged in Christ, love springs forth spontaneously. Isn't that the experience you want? That in your life, where you are, how you live, as you relate to people, love is constantly springing forth from within? That can be our experience. But self has to be merged in Christ. Love springs forth spontaneously. She continues, the completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within. She also says it is not possible for the heart in which Christ abides to be destitute of love. So again, Christ has to make, we have to open the doors so that Christ can make our hearts his home. When he is within, with, lives within us, when our self is merged with him, he transforms us to become more like him and his love springs forth spontaneously. It is striking, and I was raised an Adventist, and I think that the statement here, the completeness of Christian character, well, what is the completeness of Christian character? That's perfection. The definition of perfection here is very different 
to how I used to think of perfection when I was growing up. The definition of perfection here, the completeness of Christian character is attained. What is perfection? When the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within. And she didn't say when you live in a life of doing good to others, because it's possible to do that. Jesus himself says on the great judgment day that people are going to come to him and say, Lord, in your name, haven't we done all these wonderful works? In your name, haven't we done all these things? And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. So it's not just about doing good. It's about doing good from the right motives. It's of doing right because Jesus is living within you, because the fruits of the Spirit are being manifested in your life, because this is happening spontaneously, because Christ is resident in your heart and in your life. The good news is the gospel promises that if we only let him, Jesus says, a new heart will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. The message today, GYC, is that Jesus breaks down all the little social boxes that separate people from each other. And Jesus is calling us today to follow in his steps. As a devout boy, devout Jewish boy, Paul had been taught to thank God. Every Jewish male prayed every day, God, I thank you that I had not been born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Those were three important social categories in the time of Jesus, categories that were negatively stereotyped, Gentiles, slaves, and women. They were central to how Paul had been raised and how he taught. Every day I said, every Jewish male prayed a prayer, Lord, I thank you, I have not been born a Gentile, a slave, or woman. But when Paul experienced salvation in Jesus, he was able to declare in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female. Why? Because we are all one in Jesus Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Racial superiority is gone. There is neither slave or free. Class superiority is gone. There is neither male or female. Sexual superiority is gone. Oh, of course, this doesn't mean that when we become a Christian, racial, social, sexual differences are literally gone. After one becomes a Christian, you're still black or white, Jamaican or Nigerian, illiterate or highly educated. You're still male or female. What Paul is saying is that Christ has nullified these distinctions. It doesn't mean they are no longer there. It means for the Christian and in the Christian church, these distinctions no longer matter. They still exist, but they are no longer criteria for making spiritual decisions in the household of faith. They're no longer the basis on which we view people, think of people, relate to people. 
every social distinction, every category between male, female, race, ethnicity, nationality, class, all of these things don't matter in the Christian community, shouldn't matter in the Christian community because we stand as equals made in the image of God. I'm saying today that we live in a society where people are locked into social boxes based on their age, their nationality, their education, their gender, their social background. And Jesus is calling on each one of us to treat people not on the basis of external characteristics, but to view people the way that God sees them. Final quotation, Christ Subject Lessons 384, 385. If we love God because he first loved us, we shall love all for whom Christ died. We cannot come in touch with divinity without coming in touch with humanity. Connected with Christ, we are connected with our fellow men. Then, once we have that connection, the pity and compassion of Christ will be manifest in our life. We shall not wait, she says, to have the needy and unfortunate brought to us. It will be as natural for us to minister to the needy and suffering as it was for Christ to go about doing good. Wouldn't you like that to be your experience? I certainly would like it to be my experience that I today in 2009, almost 2010, I could live a life where it would be natural for me to reach and minister and serve others as it was for Jesus. That's what God is offering us. That's how God wants to transform us. And remember, I began with the quotation, if we did this, 100 conversions to the truth, where now there is one. That's not the reason we do it. We do it because we are submitting our lives to Jesus. We are saying, Lord, live out your life within me. We're saying to the Holy Spirit, we want the fruits of the Spirit to be seen in our life. But I'm saying there is this, this mission that God has given us will be accomplished easily when we submit to God and let him live out his life within us so that he can transform us to becoming those agents of change, to be following in the footsteps of Jesus, to be stepping out in that same life and ministry of Jesus so that we can change the world for him. I want that to be my experience, and I hope that is the same for you. I have talked a lot. I want to give at least a few minutes. I told you to interrupt me, but no one did. So I want to give at least a few minutes for questions or comments before we end this session. Questions? No questions? It's a seminar. Yes, thank you. Some courageous soul. <laughs> We can bear witness to this truth, to the truth that 
Okay, uh, I mean, uh, I'm making sure I'm understanding your question correctly. If I'm understanding your question, your, your question is, is it possible that some of the writers, when you say writers, you mean writers of the Bible, yes. could have been influenced by their own cultural context and background in terms of writing the scripture? Yes. And I would say to you, the answer to that is yes. Of course they were influenced by their culture and background in writing the scripture. However, they were holy men of God, spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. They were inspired by God. But they spoke out of their own, the language. God, God as, as, as Ellen White says it in a beautiful passage, um, um, they, they were God's penmen, not his pen. Mitch meaning, uh, Seventh Adventists don't believe that, that God dictated the identical words that they needed to use. We don't believe in, in word inspiration, that every single word, the, the, the men use their own words, uh, their own knowledge, their own background in putting together the information. But what they were describing, what we, they were describing was what God had given them. But, but certainly the, the, the language and the phrasing and, and the expression, and you could even argue even in part their own set of biases and emphases is reflected in what they did. Take a good example. We have the story of Jesus in the Bible. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you study the Synoptic Gospels and the Gospel of John, there are different emphases each one has. And you certainly see, you, you, you find more technical medical terms in the Gospel of Luke than you find in any other, uh, other Gospel. Because Luke was a physician, and, and he, he wrote and he saw the things and was writing from his knowledge and background as a physician. Um, you, you, you have in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew was a Jew who, who had a, an agenda, you could say, um, but wanted to, to document to the Jews that, that Jesus um, was fulfilling all of the prophecies of the Hebrew Scriptures. And, and you find in Matthew repeatedly that Jesus did this um, and, and he fulfilled this as it was spoken of the prophet is much more strongly comes through in Matthew than any of the other gospels. So, so yes, I mean, God uses us, which, which, which is an important point. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a quotation that I'm going to use in another seminar in this series where, where, where the spirit of prophecy makes the point, that's why God made the church. And he has brought us together with people with different backgrounds and capacities and strengths and weaknesses. And he has put us together as his body so that together we can accomplish more than, than we can accomplish by ourselves. And Ellen White introduces the quotation by saying, there's no nation or, or, or person that is perfect in everything. And that's why God has put us together. And when we don't come together in unity, all of the pieces that God has put there for us to accomplish everything he wants to accomplish isn't there. Because there's no group or person that's perfect. And he's put us all together that we put all of our strengths together, we can get more done for him. So great question. Thank you.
Um, and I think that's my answer to it. I saw a hand back here, and then I'll come to your hand. There, there was a hand back here? Yes. Yes, if, if, you were, if you were in my first hour, there was extensive racism in Jesus' days. There was extensive discrimination in Jesus' days. The Samaritans were a group, for example, that were viewed um, uh, negatively. They were mixed race. Um, of, of Jews and Gentiles, and they were viewed negatively in, in many ways. We talked about in the last hour that even if a, a Samaritan woman as much as walk entered a Jewish village, it was declared unclean until evening. So there was systemic racism and discrimination in the time of Jesus. Women were treated un, un, unfairly. We gave many examples of that in the last hour with the example of a woman could be divorced simply for talking to a man in the street. That was the basis of divorce. Yes. Um, is that possible? Um, I don't know if you all heard the question. Can we as Seven Adventists become selfish in our learning, want to learn more, 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 and, and, and not have much interaction with others? It's a danger. It's certainly a danger. It's certainly one of the, the things that, that was characteristic of, of the Jews in the time of Jesus. They were not fulfilling their mission. Um, they had a very interior focus. They had, since the fall of Jerusalem, um, they, and they, they, they had developed the, the synagogue system that had heavily focused on study of the scripture and study of the Torah and had missed some of the, the larger um, um, opportunities of, of service and outreach and ministry that God had called them to do. So is it a danger for us? It's a danger. Um, I, I hope that, that we will rise above that danger. I would say come back to the next session because our time is up and I don't want to hold the, the rest group back. Happy to talk to you later or we can ask the uh, question at the next, the next session. The next seminar, when we come back together, we begin on the topic um, entitled um, Laodicea 101, Race, Separate Conferences and the Gospel. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.